Welcome to the Seller Roundtable e-commerce coaching and business strategies with Andy Arnott and Amy Wees. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Seller Roundtable episode number 32 with your hosts, Amy Weiss and Andy Arnott. <laughs> that was pretty good. Andy usually handles the introductions, but today Andy's been moving houses, so he put it on Amy today to handle it, and I, I think I pulled it off. I think I did okay. No, you nailed it. You nailed it. I would have messed that up. I would have messed that up, so good job. Thank you. Well, we have a very special guest today. Uh, we have Steven Selikoff with us, and Steven is um, also <laughs> one of my business partners, and, um, and we help teach entrepreneurs to bring unique products to the market with the Canton Fair experience. And uh, we get to take trips to China together every year, but, um, but Steven has just a wonderful story. And, um, and we just thought we've got to have, we've been talking about it. We've been talking about, we got to have Steven on the show. We have to. So today we just said, Hey, let's have Steven on the show. So welcome Steven. Hello. Hello. Hey Andy, how are you doing? How's the move going? Good. Uh, thank you so much for, for being here. And uh, yeah, yeah, good. Um, very tiring. Um, the last couple, like, uh, like Wednesday through Friday, it was like three hours, of, you know, three and a half, four hours of sleep a night. And, uh, you know, we, we hired movers and did all that. But you know, it's, it's still a massive undertaking, especially with three children. Uh, luckily, my, my mother in law was very, very helpful. So um, thanks, Jeannie. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome that you're you're surviving the move between one house to another um and selling one house that's that's selling and buying and moving and all the things in between it's awesome well steven uh we are all curious to know about you and where you were born where you live now uh you know a little bit about steven and uh you know tell us a little bit about yourself well, as you can tell from my accent, particularly when I talk about coffee, I'm from New York. I'm from a little town called Yonkers, just north of uh, Manhattan. And uh, then uh, after going to college, I lived down in Soho, uh, in lower part of Manhattan. So uh, I used to, uh, I was telling someone the other day, I used to walk out of my building and see the Twin Towers in front of me every single day. It's uh, quite an experience. But um, I, gosh, uh, I went to college at University of Pennsylvania down in Philadelphia, Wharton School, um, and uh, also at Syracuse University. Spent uh, some, some uh, summers at other programs, including Harvard and at uh, Northwest University, where I was in the radio TV film program. They actually put me on the air one night, which was a big mistake. Us at two o'clock in the morning, I screwed up so bad that people drove 20 miles to come get me off the air. So uh, that's not my future, and yet somehow you got me talking in front of a microphone today. So congratulations. <laughs> so, so Stephen, are you? Uh, you're, you're very much into coffee talk, then, huh? Oh yes, coffee talk. <laughs> and my my mom my mom is from Jersey, so uh, we were in New York a lot growing up. So it's always fun because you know whenever I call my mom, I go. Carol, are you up for some coffee talk? 
Well, you know, the traditional question when someone says uh, they're from Jersey to follow up and say, what exit? That's, that's all you need to know. <laughs> Livingston. She was in Livingston. There you go. I don't know the exit, but I know the town. <laughs> Stephen, what was your major in college? My major was business administration. My dad saw me going into uh, law school and becoming an attorney and all of that. And instead, I disappointed him by growing my hair long, falling in love with photography, and eventually becoming a fashion photographer. Yes. So you, you have taken some pretty amazing photographs and, uh, and you definitely showcase your skills still today for us in the Canton Fair experience. You take great videos. You're a great video editor. And I love having that skill on our team. It's pretty awesome. So tell us some, who is the, the most famous person you've ever photographed? Um, Oh, that's a, that's a tough one because a lot of the models are famous because they're models. So this was back in the, in, in the eighties. So, you know, photographs, Cindy Crawford, Linda Evangelista, Stephanie Seymour. Uh, in fact, at the time, this was before she was going out with Axl Rose and before the uh, cover of Sports Illustrated. But um, we used to hang out on Thursday nights at a place called Cactus Cafe in downtown uh, Manhattan. And, Thursday night drinking with her and her roommate, Denise and I. Um, yeah, just a whole bunch of models. Some of them now have gone on to uh, movies and TV and stuff like that. And it's always fun to see them. Um, I have one friend from Brazil who, a beautiful young lady, always talked about keeping, keeping your face simple, which was her way of saying always stay humble. And... She's gone on to be in a bunch of uh, TV shows and movies and everything. And uh, yesterday she posted a picture of her backstage hanging out with Beyonce. And I thought, oh my goodness, Giselle, you do keep your life simple because you've got all these things going on and still you're the most humble, sweetest person ever. And you get to hang out with Beyonce, which I do not get to do. <laughs> well, that is so cool. Um, you know, most of us know you as the negotiation mastermind. You have been uh, on a lot of different programs talking about negotiation. And I know, you know, working with you that you have a breadth of experience, not just with negotiation, but bringing unique products to the marketplace. Um, tell me about how you first caught the entrepreneur, entrepreneurial bug. That, that goes back quite a few years. There was a TV show in the 70s called Star Trek, and uh, Joni Winston was a, a friend of my mom's from, from college, and she started a bunch of people getting together who were fans of Star Trek. They started the very first Star Trek convention, which is really pretty cool, and um, it, became, it became the mother or grandmother now of all of the, the, the comic cons and the sci-fi cons and everything else, but this was the first one. Nobody had any idea what to expect. And at 13 years old, at the second ever Star Trek convention, I put up a table and I started selling stuff. I had um, the film from, that they edited from each episode that ended up on the editing room floor. Um, Gene Roddenberry's wife would sell that to, to people. Uh, and I got a bunch of that film and I made prints out of it. And I blew up the prints, stuck them on a, a big display, and people would come up and buy these photographs. Of, of Star Trek. And at 13 years old, I was suddenly making hand over fist, a lot of money. 
Mm-hmm. And and I, I learned some basic uh, business as well. The fact that I was making prints allowed me to keep on to the, keep the original film in my hand. My brother was selling the film, doing pretty well, but his inventory was going out the door. I was able to recreate anything at any time. Started teaching me about marketing and so on. Uh, when I got into uh, fashion photography, uh, I also developed a reputation for marketing back then. I got interviewed a few times on that and so on. So uh, I love negotiating, but I would say marketing is also an absolute love. And as I said, I've had the bug for a long, long time. That's pretty cool. So uh, I love that you started as early as 13 selling copies of your prints. Um, (laughs) uh, Andy, we're getting a little bit of feedback from your microphone, I think. Oh, there we go. Uh, All right. So... Steven, you know, this, of course, is an Amazon sellers podcast. It's mostly what we talk about, but you are always giving sound advice in all of the Amazon FBA groups about sourcing, negotiations, contracts, shipping. When did you first learn about Amazon? Oh, gosh. Well, I've been... I mean, as most people aware of buying on Amazon forever, but my first experience with Amazon FBA, uh, being here in Seattle, and I was working at Microsoft, I had friends who had gone over to to Amazon. So uh, I learned about FBA in October of 2006. And FBA only launched in September of 2006. So I was one of the first people within the first 30 days to sign up and start selling on FBA. I had a weight loss product back then. And I figured, hey, it's October. People want to buy things for, uh, for the new year to lose weight and so on. Um, and I, was, I loved it. It was very different back then. You've got a free website along with signing up for FBA. You don't get that anymore. But uh, soon afterwards, however, I moved into Amazon Vendor. So I only recently came back to FBA. FBA a couple of years ago, and I can help a lot for people talking about sourcing, about product choice, about negotiation, about logistics. When they have tough questions about Amazon FBA, I just type in there, ask Amy Weiss, uh, because those specifics as far as listing optimization and so on, you are definitely the queen. I, I, I'm not the person to be an expert on those things. Well, that's okay because you're an expert on the really important things that allow us to be profitable, like negotiating the right price and um, getting the right supplier and protecting our ideas and our supply chain. So you're definitely, um, you contribute to people learning how to really be profitable no matter what their sales channel is. Um, So... Speaking of sales channels, you have a large bulk of experience selling in retailers. Uh, How did you learn? Yeah, I mean, you you helped me understand that getting into retailers is actually not that tough. And I had been working at it for quite a while and was unable to get the necessary information. But you have a ton of experience selling in retailers. How did you learn about that? I first learned about getting into retailers because of an interesting hobby I have. I like to blow glass. And I was going out with a woman who um, was a buyer for a retail chain. And she convinced me that my glass was good enough, these little blue hummingbird feeders, to start selling them. So I started off selling to the local gift shops and uh, at a local lavender festival where there's a bunch of stores selling 
anything that's in shades of blue and purple. And she taught me all about um, retailers, what retailers are looking for. She taught me about keystoning. She taught me about approaching retailers and so on. Um, and then um, the, the, I learned a lot as well by literally just talking to actual retailers, talking to the people I was selling to. Um, so uh, that definitely added to my education, just going out there and doing it. And then, as I mentioned, in 2006, I had a weight loss product. Uh, I had already approached retailers about that. Uh, Walgreens brought me out to their headquarters in, outside of Chicago for a three-day seminar. And they spent all three days teaching everyone about um, retail, about big box stores, about selling to them, and so on. So um, I've been very lucky, and I've also kept my ears open. Um, one of the people that I've learned a ton from is joining us in China, and that's Tim Bush. Um, he's been someone I listen to his podcast a lot. He's been a business coach and advisor for me as well. Um, so I, I, I've learned because, I, as I said, I've kept my ears open and I've asked a lot of questions. Yeah, and I love how you take a no-nonsense approach of hey, just go out and talk to people. That's how you learn, right? Yeah. And absolutely. I don't know why that hadn't occurred to me before. You know, I was like going to my local small business association and trying to get coaching on, okay, how do I, you know, they gave me access to a few retailer databases and things like that, that I didn't even know about at, you know, the public library and stuff like that. But when I talked to you about it, it was like, whoa, I could really just go and talk to the owner of a local mom and pop and get a lot of great information and maybe even get a product order out of it. So, uh, so I love that, uh, that you have that experience and that you take that no nonsense approach of just don't be afraid to go out there and have a conversation. And that's how you learn. And like you said, you keep your ears open. So that's really awesome. Um, as far as Amazon goes, I know uh, you've been on Vendor and recently they've changed Vendor and um, kind of moved things around. What has been your biggest challenge with Amazon? Um, I think my biggest challenge on Amazon is that in many ways it's not a, uh, I like to say it's not a healthy environment or a healthy platform. Um, there are people out there who are playing games like they're in high school. They're putting up uh, bad reviews for people. They're making false complaints. Uh, they are they're doing all sorts of black hat tricks. Uh, so I think that is incredibly frustrating because I look at this as, as a full-time business. Uh, and I think the other frustration I have with Amazon is despite all of their wonderful technology, they have not cracked the problem of review farms where people, you know, they literally can just, you know, punch out a whole bunch of reviews and so on of uh, listing abuse where, you know, suddenly you're looking at, you know, uh, you know, some sort of wonderful new technology and it's got 120 reviews for, you know, a, a foot brace, you know, it's like uh, that sort of stuff. Uh, Amazon is, it's large, it's, it's almost, it's like 40 some odd, 47% of, of online purchasing. And they've done incredible things. They've, they've made people trust that you can just put out your credit card and 
products will automatically appear at your door two days in most cases. So I don't think that these are impossible problems for them to solve, but they still have those problems out there. And on that same token, uh, you know, you brought up a lot of great things that, you know, the, the reviews and the hijacking listings and all that other fun stuff that we don't generally deal with selling wholesale to retailers, right? Oh. Um, <laughs> so it is a little frustrating on that standpoint, but there's a lot of benefits too. What have been uh, your, your favorite parts of selling on Amazon? I love waking up and seeing that I made money while I was sleeping. I know that sounds terribly mercenary, but I just love that. That is you know, just that ability of passive income, of putting it out there and having someone say, wow, I like that, I want that. That's so cool. Yeah, you even had an order, a merchant fulfilled order while we were in China. <laughs> yes. And you forgot to turn it off and you were like, uh, Amy, I got an order. Yes, <laughs> I, I got a early in the morning food. before breakfast. <laughs> So it's, it is great that you, you know, I love it when my phone goes off and I get the little notification of, you know, lots of sales going by. That's a great feeling. Um, so let's, you've had some really innovative products that you've brought to the market and we're definitely going to talk a little bit about, um, some of your really big, awesome marketing techniques. Uh, but what is your, can you tell us a little bit about your product development process, your product selection process? Yes. Uh, first of all, I don't use tools. I don't use Jungle Scout or um, uh, Unicorn Smasher or uh, the other ones. I don't use them at all. Uh, I do it the old-fashioned way. Um, I identify market gaps. I identify market needs. Uh, I do it just by understanding what, uh, where do I I uh, have touch processes throughout the day, throughout my life where others have similar ones. And um, particularly in that situation, uh, you start digging down into, you know, you're doing the same thing every day. Why are you doing it? Often habits, let's lift the cover up a little bit and understand why you do it the way you do, because it's not just a habit, it's a solution to a problem. And maybe there's a better solution and a product that can be sold from that. And then plain old research. Um, in the uh, uh, chat, Kevin uh, mentioned he thought all of my products are dog-based. They're not. I also have a, a food product I'm trying to launch and uh, home goods products and so on. But research. Um, uh, a lot of people know that I had uh, dog snores, which was for people who let the dog sleep on the bed. It's fun. It's cute. Uh, it's my personality. All of my products have a sense of humor to them and uh, uh, just a little bit off kilter, that's me, but it's also very, very straightforward research. 53% of all dogs sleep on the human bed. That means more dogs sleep on the human bed than sleep in a dog house, a dog crate, a dog kennel um, combined. So uh, I know that with the market sizes there, I know that 72% of small dogs sleep on the human bed. So when I got into it, I also got into it knowing that there are very strong metrics behind me. So it's the combination of that hard research, uh, knowing the market, knowing the customers, as well as understanding where there are gaps, where there are opportunities. 
Stephen, I love that. I love that example because um, I love that example. Hold on, let me let me play with my mic here. It's it's misbehaving today, I guess. Um, I love that um, that you, that you're putting those that that kind of uh, you know day to day insight. Uh, you know, a lot of a lot of great products come from just looking um, looking around you and just figuring out what's working and what's not working. Uh, one of the latest products that we came up with. It was my wife and I and my brother-in-law just sitting around and being like, well, wait a minute, like every product in this niche does it this way, but it's so inefficient and terrible. Like, and there's this other thing that's used for a different purpose, but would look, would work, you know, wonderfully. Um, and we started researching and we found nothing like it. Um, you know, it's just one of those, and I know people always say that, oh, just, you know, look around you or whatever. But when, when you really start uh, looking at your day-to-day -day life and your interactions with people, you'll start seeing these like little frustrations. Um, and then, like you said, once you get those frustrations, then go out and look and see if it's, if it's out there and if it's not out there, you know, um, or if the, if there is something out there that's, uh, you know, not ideal, then just iterate on it. Um, yeah, I think, and then do a little bit of research. I think that j just those two basic things, which so many people skip because they're lazy and they want to pull up, jungle scout and get stuff handed to them is where all these people fail and they fail in the beginning and they give up and it's just so sad to see. And yeah. I think the, the tough part too is, you know, I, I heard it from someone this morning on a call. Uh, they said, well, Amy, you, you invent things and I don't have, I don't have time for that, you know? And, and I said, well, inventing something doesn't always mean making something from scratch. As you just mentioned, there could be an existing product on the market that would work really good for another purpose and isn't being marketed to that audience yet. Uh, you know, and Steven, uh, with his dog snores product, he just made something out of a different material to adapt it for dogs, but <laughs> it's still an existing um, material that's on the market. You're just utilizing it in a certain way. So there's definitely things that you can do that don't require you to create something completely from scratch, but it will still be something that's unique and is, is meeting an unmet need instead of the, you know, kind of saturated race to the bottom that happens when so many people are using the same search filters. Yeah. Well, what happens on, on those tools and, and I've got a friend who is sponsored by Helium 10, so I can't give too much information here, but his most successful product came from him and his girlfriend playing board games and realizing there, were, there was something they could do that to improve on what's already out there. Um, so they have a unique product, and yet he's sponsored by, by Helium 10. And talking about using product, I'm sorry, go on. Well, I don't think that I'm not going to say his name, but I, I've seen his <laughs> face. I think you know what I'm talking about. I don't think, and, and I think that all of us love our tools, right? And, and there's nothing wrong, Andy and I say this all the time, there's nothing wrong with using those tools as a data point. It does allow you to pour through a lot of product information at one time. And that isn't always possible when you're like manually searching through Amazon, you know? So, I mean, or even manually searching the internet. And so I definitely think there's a place for some of the tools that are out there. Uh, what I think that people should watch is not making all of their sourcing decisions based on the results from one tool. So I, I think that that is, you know, it's a good data point to be able to say, oh, you know, I'm, how many of these uh, 
pillows are selling for dog beds are selling on Amazon and how do they look? You know, how does the market look? I think that's okay to use those data points, but then as, as you mentioned, and as Andy mentioned, it's really good to get into the uniques of it. Okay. Well, how am I going to stand out? And what about my product is meeting an unmet need, want, or desire in the marketplace? So I think that's awesome. And, and, and you just used the, the key words right there. I, my, me, because we talk about differentiating. You want to be different than everyone else that's out there. And then you choose um, a product that's already popular. It's like the old joke about the teenager getting their first tattoo. I want to be different. I want to be different. So I want a tattoo that looks like flames. It's like, no, you are different. Every one of us is different. Uh, what is it that makes me unique, that makes you unique? You know, that's what you need to be thinking about when you start developing the products and use that. Because, I mean, just like, like Andy said, it's what you're doing, those touch processes throughout the day. If you dig down, why are you doing it differently? What makes it work for you? Of course, you need to validate these to make sure that, that multiple people, that there's true customer demand. But what makes you different if you could take that and expand it into what makes your product different using your experiences, your life? And then someone can say, wow, why didn't I think of that? Why didn't someone think of that before? It's because sometimes we're blind to those things. But there are things. And if you own it, that's going to differentiate it because you're different. Definitely. And, you know, it's all about connecting with others that are like you as well through those same needs. Uh, oh, yeah. Here's, here's, a, here's a great example. I'm sure Andy and I both have experienced this. On warm days, our dogs like to lick something that's cold. Well, only in the last couple of years have you been able to find pup pops in the freezer section at your supermarket. But that's something everybody did. Everyone knew people. I used to put ice cubes in, in the water dish when it got too hot. And why did it take that long for a company to come along and say, wait a second, we'll just make dog flavored popsicles. And dogs love them. Why didn't someone think of it before? We all do it. We know the habit, but ice in the dish. Yeah, yeah so I, you could probably apply that to so many of the unique products that have come out in a, the last, you know, in forever, you know. So what and, were you going to say, Andy? I was just going to say, and how many times do you like turn on the TV and see a product that you thought of like three or four years ago and you're like, oh man, you know, so like uh, what I tell everybody to do, which is what I do is get like, um, you know, get some, I like uh, um, Google Keep but there's Evernote, there's, you know, or you can go old school and just get a black notebook and keep it by your bed. Write down any idea that you have. I mean, or, or like Kevin said, mind map. I love mind mapping too, but just start writing stuff down and then go back to it. Like literally what I do is I put in my, in my Google keep, I write anything down that I have an idea about 95% of them have been invented, but there are those few gems that I come up with that after I start researching, I go, nobody's done this yet. Um, just keep track of them and go go through them like once a month. That's what I do. I just tag them with invention as I put it somewhere in the text. So when I search, it'll be there um, and just go through it and, and look through it. And, and um, you know, and, and this is going to sound terrible because I, I don't want, I don't want this to be like a, <laughs> like an encouragement, especially for people who are not into drinking, but whatever, whatever you do to loosen up in the evenings, 
once in a while, just do that with a group of friends and start, uh, you know, chatting about stuff and, and, you know, bringing up some of these ideas and things. Some of the best ideas are, are, um, you know, over just a bunch of friends hanging out, chatting about, you know, what's working, what's not working, you know, a lot what's going on in the news. You'd be surprised how those conversations can evolve into, Oh my God, I wish this it was invented. I wish this was available. I oh, wish yeah. you hear that all the time. So. And I would love to encourage people. It's funny, in, in China, our groups, they work together for two months before they go to China. So they get to know each other really well. And they're like a family by the time they get out there on the China trip. And uh, the last time our folks started they would come to dinner with us because we always do group dinners. And then, you know, we found them in the bar later and they had invented this thing called masterminds with wine. And they were like buying the domain names and coming up with all kinds of product ideas together. And it was really fun for them to be able to go to Canton Fair the next day and, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and source some of those ideas or look at different things that were available. So that was, it's kind of fun, you know, when you get together with other people. But the other thing I wanted to point out is, like you said, Andy, uh, when I think of things, uh, sometimes they're already invented. And what is cool about that is you can continue to think about, Kevin mentioned mind map, you can continue to think through that problem because you might come up with a better mousetrap, right? You might actually come up with a better solution to that problem and give you an example one of our participants was having trouble with the ideation process and and uh, she said you know my dog drools and uh you know and i have one of those mats under the under the uh the dog bowl and i hate it because it's not absorbent and i have to like the water gets all over when my dog's drinking water out of the bowl and the water gets all over and then i'm sopping it up and then she said, well, but then I went out there and I saw that uh, absorbent mats have already been, you know, invented and they're, they're already out there. They're already selling a ton of them. Uh, so, you know, I kind of got frustrated and gave up on that idea and I'm having trouble coming up with an idea. And I said, well, hang on a minute. You still have the problem of the dog drinking the water out of the bowl and making a mess what potential solutions, if you put that problem in the middle of the map, what potential solutions are there? And I bet you could come up with something that's even better than a mat. You know, you could come up with something that is really, you know, a great solution for every single dog owner out there that is less hassle than having to clean up a mat, right? Whether that's a removable tray that goes, you know, catches the water outside of the dog bowl, whatever it is, but- Make, make um, it toddler proof as well. Cause <laughs> one of my son's favorite things to do is he just comes and picks it up and dumps it or, you know, dumps it on himself or, you know, that's, that's always fun. <laughs> a water bottle for dogs. And we'll, yeah, while we, and while, while we scream at him, no, you know, drenched. <laughs> That's always fun. But he's so cute, though. Oh, he is cute. Don't get me wrong. Still love the kid to death, but, you know. At a year that's and a half, son, you should know better. <laughs> but that's a good point, though, is, you know, there are so many solutions to a potential problem. Don't give up the minute you think of, oh, I could make an absorbent mat, and then you're like, oh, wait, somebody already did that. That's okay. The problem still exists because people are still selling a ton of mats and a ton of dog bowls. So... Anyway, you know, don't be afraid to, to keep working on a problem and you might, you might just find a really cool solution.
Thanks for tuning in to part one of this episode. Join us every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for live Q&A and bonus content after the recording at sellerroundtable.com. Sponsored by the ultimate software tool for Amazon sales and growth, sellerseo.com and amazingathome.com.